Hi folks, it's Brian here. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we were going to do some wacky April Fool's hijinks with this episode when we recorded it about six weeks ago, but given the way things are right now, it didn't quite feel right, so we're just going to get right into it. We're still here to talk about board games, we're still here to have a good time, but take care of yourselves, stay at home when you can, keep your hands washed if you have to be out there on the front lines fighting the coronavirus in whatever way you can. Thank you for doing it. Everybody stay safe, and we'll be back at your next month. The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 21 of the Ascent of Board Games. They haven't been able to shut us up yet. You can't stop the signal. We are here, as usual, to talk about games we like, and we have loosely hung a theme on them. And this month, we're going to be talking about Hidden Trader Games, which is not the same as Hidden Teams Games. These are mostly cooperative games in which one of the players is secretly trying to make sure everybody else loses which enables them to win. One player is the trader, yep. which is, in our book, an important differentiation between hidden trader and hidden teams. Yes, and we did in episode 12, which was our social deduction slash hidden teams episode, we talked about a lot of the games there where you have multiple hidden traders. So if you want to listen to our hidden teams episode, you can find that one where you found this one. But it really surprised me when we made that line how few games actually ended up in this list. Like, it was really surprising. Well, I wonder if it's because it foments, like, just people being unhappy with their game result. Because, like, if one person wins and everybody else loses, you've got a lot of upset people. (laughs) Well, the thing is, in literally every competitive game, one person wins and everybody else loses. But they don't start cooperatively, right? Fair enough. So, like, everyone's working together towards a goal until one person isn't. I think you need a certain group mindset for this kind of game to go over well. And I do think there are a lot more games. I'm not a huge fan of the hidden trader thing in general, especially in a co-op game. I think it often tends to just ruin a game, which I think we'll get to later. Mm -hmm. Not always, but... Well, I think there is an important difference between a game that is designed with a hidden trader mechanic and a game that has a hidden trader mechanic tacked onto it. So it can be a hidden trader. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm conceptually okay with that because it's like, If your group is into this sort of thing, here's a way you can do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in most cases, when that option is there, I prefer not to. Yeah, I have absolutely no problem ignoring optional hidden trader mechanics. Mm -hmm. But some groups are a lot, like our group in general is a lot less into conflict than some other groups. Some groups need that level of conflict to exist in some of these games, right? They have trouble really getting into it unless there's that level of conflict. Players who just play competitive games all the time, and a lot of these games are largely cooperative in a lot of cases, right? Like, it's a one versus many game, you just don't know who the one is when you start. It's not dissimilar to a dungeon crawl game in some aspects in that you have a group of people who are all working together, but you have this added tension of who is the person who's not on my team. Now I can't trust everyone. I actually kind of like that mechanic conceptually. 
I do have friends that like literally every time we play one of these games, they're hoping against hope to be the traitor. Like that's their goal in the game to be the traitor. Like I know we're not talking about Battlestar Galactica specifically, but like they will always pick Gaius Baltar because they want two loyalty cards because they're like, I want to guarantee I'm bad. I think that all goes back to how well these games are designed. And I think that is a really difficult thing to do. And when it is done well, as a board game player, having the wherewithal to appreciate how hard it is to design a game that it has a hidden trader mechanic to be both fun, balanced, and interesting. Meeting that kind of trifecta, I think, is something that should be held in high regard. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Hidden trader games. It seems like a relatively recent innovation, but as is traditional, Frank came up with one that is well before the rest of the series, and as is traditional, it's a strange, unexpected tie-in game. Yeah, even though it wasn't on our list, just as I walked in, I was kind of like musing about games that might be kind of interesting. And that is 1985's Murder, She Wrote Board Game. <laughs> published by uh, Warren Company or and John Lamont Enterprises. It's one of those mass market things, obviously, which means no designers credited. The game is, well, odd. First of all, everyone is Angela Lansbury or Jessica Fletcher. And you're on an island and there's houses and a bunch of NPCs. Is it Cabot Cove, the murder capital of the United States? I think so, yes, 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 yes. And a lot of people aren't dead at the start of the game. <laughs> well, that's good. It's a good way to start. One person is dealt out as the murderer in this pool of Jessica Fletcher's. <laughs> I was going to say, I really hope that the hidden roll cards are just, you are Angela Lansbury <laughs> or you are not Angela Lansbury. <laughs> yeah, really. I think it may say you are Jessica Fletcher. It's been a while. <laughs> Which is, again, just kind of weird sci-fi. At the end, do the multiple Jessica Fletchers fight to the death to find out which one is the true one? There can only be one. <laughs> only in a much better version of this game. It is actually a decent game, though. Basically, everyone wanders around. There are a bunch of different houses with people, and you go and just kind of investigate and talk to them. Mostly what you're looking is to see if they're still alive. <laughs> And you walk up and you flip over the counter and go, oh, you're alive. Thank you. And keep wandering around. You're required every time you talk to someone to swap out its token with a different token. That could be an alive token or it could be a dead token. <laughs> oh, you're alive. Oh, wait. No, you're not. And the object is for the murderer to kill off five people in a limited amount of time. So let me ask you this. Could Angela Lansbury be put into a position where she has to swap out a you are alive token with a no, you are dead token? Because no, no. accidental murder. <laughs> I was mentioning before we started, I really want there to be a dark, gritty reboot of Murder, She Wrote, in which Jessica Fletcher is actually responsible for all the murders. And she's just posing as this harmless old woman who is solving them and pinning them on other people. That's free, guys. Anyone who wants to roll with that. <laughs> Netflix are waiting for your call. Dexter, she wrote. I love it. <laughs> But yeah, it's a cute game. It's a, I mean, it's ancient. And it does have a deduction murder theme, which you'll find in a lot of those kind of hidden secretive games. Mm -hmm. A lot of those sprawled out of the mid 80s murder. What year did you spree. say this was from? 1985. I also find things that are from 1985 to be ancient. Um, you, you set me up for that one. Yeah, good point. <clears throat> we can pull Mike's <laughs> cable out of the thing. We're done listening to him. Yeah, I'm going to strangle him with it. <laughs> A lot of these games end up having, hey, you might or might not have a hidden traitor, which is interesting. And I think that started right that here. That started here, yeah. So we're talking about Shadows Over Camelot, which was released in 2005 by Days of Wonder. Designed by Bruno Cathala and Serge Lager. It's a super hard 
three to seven player, everybody against the board game. It's based on the Thurian legend. There's one board where you have to try to go get Excalibur, and there's one board where you need to go win a joust. There's the Holy Grail you gotta you find. To go, go get the Holy Grail. You need to go fight all the Picts and the Saxons. And so there's a bunch of different places on the board where you can do things and functionally at every single one of those places if you lose you now move a couple steps closer to losing so during the course of the game you either place white and black swords on the round table and at the end of the game the number of swords of the specific color determine whether the table wins or not at the beginning of the game you're given a character your character has special powers which make you better at one or two locations normally right it might be very specific like oh hey i'm really good at the joust or it might be like hey i get to draw an extra card you get some specific powers and you also get a loyalty card when the deck is built i believe you add one more than the number of players and one of them is a traitor right so there will probably but not automatically be a traitor right this one it was one of the first real hidden trader games certainly one of the first big mass market ones and I think that in and of itself was a concept that took a lot of people by surprise. Mechanically, it's interesting. There's a lot of little mini games that all have their own mechanics. You described it as really hard. I think it was really hard at the time. You might I think be right. compared to cooperative games we're getting now, which are just dick-punchingly hard, <laughs> Shadows is not that bad. That's fair. I remember it when I originally played it, which was years ago. Sure. I remember the feeling of, oh man, this is really hard. Yeah, and then when you have somebody who is working against you, or maybe. Actually, as the first of its breed, the Hidden Trader was handled pretty well, because you're going to scenarios and it's like, wow, you know, I'm trying to help, but I don't have any cards, or, oh, wait, did you already play that? You know, there are certainly plausible ways you can fail. I know at one point it felt like the best way for the traitor to win might have been to just reveal themselves early and dedicate themselves to actively opposing people. And start sticking out cannons. Yeah, I know. Yeah, catapults, yeah. I mean, it's still a fun game. There was an expansion, which I don't know that I've ever actually played with. And, like, one of the things... I really like about the game, right, looking back on it, is, like, it does a really great job with the theme, mm-hmm. where, like, all the things that are happening feel very Arthurian, and, like, all the stuff you're doing is very cool. The production was really... Given yeah, the I mean, time, Days of Wonder really always nice. does gorgeous yep. games. It's really gorgeous game. Like, the board is really yeah. gorgeous. Like, look, I'm really looking at the board right now. The game is gorgeous. All the components look really nice. Really nice artwork. This is definitely Days of Wonder in their prime mm-hmm. of oh, just, yeah. like, top-notch, beautiful components. And they established a lot of traditions for what would become the hidden trader genre. And I think it's a very strong foundation for a lot of the games that followed it. So the next thing we're going to talk about was released in 2008 by iLevel Entertainment. And it's ETI, Estimated Time to Invasion, designed by Mark Anticole and Matthew Anticole. In Estimated Time to Invasion, you are playing one of several Earth corporations who are all have learned independently about a coming alien invasion. And you all know that at some point in the event deck, right, you shuffle in a couple of aliens or rival cards or something very similar. I forget the exact terminology. And when enough of those pop up, the alien invasion occurs. For the first half of the game, until the alien is actually revealed, and this is the way it works for humans the entire game, is you're researching stacks of technologies by paying cards into those technologies, right? Like by expending resources and from your corporation into those researches to research these stacks of technologies. And then when you research those technologies, you take them into your hand and they improve your board state and they give you more power to go do research the next higher thing and the next better thing and the next better thing. One of you is actually the aliens. 
when you flip, you get a specific bonus for flipping depending on the kind of alien you are. And then over the course of the game, you've been getting these kind of green chits on your board that power up all of your various abilities. And then when you flip, those turn into alien power of an equal level, right? So you have to be kind of cautious about, well, do I want Brian to get a good thing or do I want a good thing? Brian's like, oh man, I really need staffing. And does he really need staffing because he really needs staffing or because when he flips, staffing is really important to him for his kind of alien. And so there's this interesting push and pull going on. Um, and it's a, it's a really clever, cute little game. Yeah, there's a bunch of little clever bits. Like the technologies are basically in a pool in the middle of the table that people are collectively trying to, to research and draft. And if somebody's working on it and somebody else gets to it first, then that's, a lot of that research is lost. And the sort of thing where you can either research safely in which sort of each card you spend is, I think, 10 points versus the cost. Or you can flip the cards over and they may be worth certain points or they may have negative points on them or they may multiply the previous card. So it's a much swingier thing. You can potentially get to research a lot faster, but you may also wind up screwing yourself. The various inventions will give you defense points, which helps you fight off the aliens, and or fame points, which is how you actually win the game. Because even though the cooperative players win the game, there is a win better. Joe's favorite. I did forget that they had a... I had totally blocked from my mind that they had a win better in that game. Yeah. Yep. Like, totally blocked it from my mind. (laughs) I was going to say, because you were saying nice things about it, so clearly... (laughs) It's such a light touch at the end that you can pretty easily just ignore it. Yeah, it's true. But yeah, this is a game that I don't think ever got a lot of press or knowledge. I mean, even Frank didn't seem to know about it, which, I mean, you own a copy. I own a copy of the game. Because you own literally every game ever made. No, not really. I didn't expect a lot of it because it was a game I had never heard of from designers I had never heard of. But yeah, it's quite a good little game. It's interesting. We'll play again. I'm looking as we speak about this. There are four copies currently up on the BGG Geek Mart for approximately 20 bucks. So it apparently hasn't generated any value in its nah. hidden gymness. It's just a game, yeah. But yeah, it looks decent at least. We should play it sometime. It's fun. You know, it's nothing earth shattering except, you know, if the aliens win. <laughs> but it's fun. We've had a couple games so far that are basically sort of the traditional, and when I say traditional, it's sort of established by Shadows Over Camelot, where basically everybody's cooperating to do one thing, and then somebody is secretly opposing them. The next one I want to talk about is a little bit different, and it's sort of a corner case for this list, but it's a fascinating game, and I wanted to talk about it anyway. This is Archipelago, which is a 2012 release by Ludically, designed by Christoph Bollinger. And it is a strictly competitive game in which you are a European colonial power discovering this island archipelago and putting the benighted natives to work, despoiling their lands for your economic benefit. It's a fairly complicated euro. There's a lot of bits going on. There's the exploration, you're collecting resources, you're building markets, you're building different buildings. There's an area control element to it. But what makes it interesting to me is there's kind of an economic engine that basically takes into account, you know, the relative scarcity of items and things that you you sell a lot of tend to be worth less and things that are rare cost more. There's also an engine with the local worker. So you can either hire workers, i.e. white people, or you can draft them from the local indigenous population, i.e. enslave them. In addition to, you know, the sort of economic cost of them, there's also sort of a native unhappiness track. <laughs> and if that gets high enough, the natives revolt and murder you all and everyone loses. 
Except... Well, yeah, and that's the thing, because part of the theory of the game is if somebody is really getting ahead and you don't have a good way to stop them, you can just say, well, let's everybody make the natives angry, and that way he doesn't win either. You get your hidden personal goal cards at the end of the game, which are mostly, you get different points for different things. But there is one called the Separatist, which means if the natives ever rebel, you win and everyone else loses. It may or may not be in the game, but if it is, it puts a really interesting twist on things. Yeah. I personally really like the hidden mechanic of this game isn't necessarily that you are a traitor is that each person has a way that will score at the end of game that is only known to them Mm -hmm. until the end of game at which point they're all revealed isn't that right well you have your individual goals which means these are things that will score for me okay also the end of game scoring is there's a i think a card or two that are face up and then everybody has an individual card that says temples are worth five points and those will score for everyone but only you know about it. Right. So if you see, hey, yeah. that guy's building a lot of temples, maybe I should get in on that because they're probably worth points. I almost like that because it's like everyone is almost like a hidden trader doing their own thing. Like, it's not really yeah, trader yeah. yeah, everyone has their own specific goals. But the fact that there's one guy, that is the main balance mechanism mm-hmm. of the game. And if he's in play, he just kind of can upend it. Right. I loved Archipelago as well. You know what my favorite part of this podcast is? It's where it makes everyone die for their laptop. <laughs> Then look up at me and go, ooh, really? And then go, you bastard. (laughs) Do do you know about the game Living Planet that just came out, which looks like a follow-on to Archipelago, designed by Christoph Bollinger? No, but I'm fascinated, Frank. Tell me more. (laughs) It uses a a weird event system. Structurally, it looks like Archipelago doesn't have hidden traitor, but it also has an event where the planet, basically you're seeding events as you do anything. You're seeding events that cause the planet to react. So it's take that vicious mechanism is all funneled through the event system of the planet. Huh. Fascinating. But otherwise, it looks like it's structured a lot like Archipelago. So I'm kind of picturing that seeding of the deck a lot like the seeding in Red Planet or um, uh, what's the original Red Planet? Robinson Crusoe. Possibly, yeah. Where it's like, you've been bitten by a snake. Put this in the yeah, deck. Yeah, Robinson mm-hmm. Crusoe strikes me as being, but in a competitive game. Yeah. Right. Hmm. All right. Archipelago was another one that I think the people who like it really like it. I think a lot of people it didn't really click with. I mean, it's a little overcomplicated and a little clunky. And a little Euro-y, yeah. It's it's definitely Euro-y, but I think it does some really interesting things. I think it's one of those niche picks that I would like to get to table again because I've played it maybe once or twice. And I really conceptually like it, but there's a lot going on mechanically. It's a meaty game. Mm -hmm. There is a lot going on there. And it's one of those things where like the more you play it, the faster you could probably get through it. But we just get it to the table so rarely that it's every time we do, we're going to have to sit down and relearn all the things. Yeah. 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 And the other thing that some people will like or hate about this game is that if somebody's getting ahead, there's not a lot of things you can do to punish them directly. So you kind of almost have to threaten to, quote-unquote, flip the table and provoke a rebellion if somebody starts getting way out ahead, which may or may not work for your particular game group. But it is an interesting game for sure, and, and I want to play it again sometime, which I feel like I say for every game in every episode. Yeah, I mean, there's that. This podcast has done nothing for it. It has grown our list of, we should play that again. Yeah, totally. That's one I agree with, and it's a Euro, which that doesn't happen much. <laughs> Our next game is a much more focused, simple, and yeah, the, the opposite extreme of totally. <laughs> Our obligatory Oink Games entry, A Fake Artist Goes to New York 2012, designed by Yoon Sasaki, who is the master of Oink Games. Basically, this is Pictionary with Hidden Trader. 
One person sits out and becomes the person who's trying to guess the Pictionary-ish thing. Everyone else is trying to get across the picture to our one person who's trying to understand it. Except (laughs) that one guy, the fake artist. He has absolutely no idea what they're drawing. Everyone's given a card showing the thing they're drawing, except the fake artist who gets, well, nothing. Everyone has a different, there are 10 different little markers in this tiny box with different colors. Everyone just takes turns passing the thing around, making a line on the paper. One of the things I like about the game is you put your pen or pencil down. You can make a single contiguous line. You can't lift your pencil up. Once you lift it up, you're done. Yep. So it limits, in a very clever way, Mm -hmm. the thing you're trying to accomplish. And you keep going around until the thing's drawn. As you're drawing, though, it does create a nice kind of dichotomy in that the actual score of the game is for everyone to figure out who the fake artist is. And so if you draw really strong, heavily obvious things, then you clue the fake artist into knowing what it is, meaning they're able to hide. The fake artist can also win if he guesses what the item is. So you want to get it across, but not the fake artist. That is sort of the origin. Uh, You know, I don't know if it was directly an inspiration, but that's the same mechanic that's been used in Spyfall and a couple of related games since, where everyone knows X except one person. That one person is trying to figure out what X is, and the other people are trying to figure out who the traitor is without revealing X. It's actually a really interesting reversal of prior hidden betrayer games where the hidden betrayer is the one with all the knowledge right they have In more information one, they, they have got nothing less <laughs> yeah and so it's terrifying to be the traitor which oh, is yeah <laughs> i love about this game and i love about Spyfall in an equal measure mm-hmm. right like when you're the traitor you're like oh no why <laughs> And that's a great feeling in a game, right? The game that can give you that utter terror of like, oh God, this is going to be the worst thing ever. We'll we'll talk about it more when we do inevitably talk about Spyfall this episode, but it leads to some really great situational humor. Mm -hmm. That is the stuff that you tell stories about to your gaming groups for many years to come. Yes. Yeah, in particular... You get cases where when people are collaborating on one thing, some people are trying to do like an overhead view of it. Some people are doing a side view of it. And a fake artist is really confused. So are the people are confused. Mm-hmm. They're pointing, looking at each other and going, what are you drawing? That, that, that's not that's anything not in my worldview. <laughs> yeah. Like the best part about this and Spyfall is like someone does a thing and one person's like, oh, I get it. And everyone else is like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> As with a lot of Oint games, some people tend to overlook these because they're little tiny monocolored boxes and there's Japanese text on them, but they're also in English. Don't overlook these. These are some really good games. And some people have them all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like yours, surely. I think also sometime around this period, 2012 through 2014, the whole hidden trader got shoved into everything. Yeah. There's a lot of cases of just optional rules. Yeah, almost every cooperative game that came out in this period seemed to have some sort of And if you want, here's a way to duct tape a hidden trader onto it. I mean, like Cash and Guns, which does not need that mechanic at all. Had one. I personally blame the success of Battlestar Galactica. Totally. Sure. Sure. That was such a phenomenon that all future cooperative games are like, oh, we should do that too. Everybody clearly wants this. Yeah. And Kickstarter stretch goals. You start seeing Kickstarter kick in about now. And And one thing that seems to be always true of all these like just slapdash add on the hidden trader mechanic, they totally ruin the game. (laughs) Because uh, I was thinking of Aliens uh, and Legendary Encounters. Have you ever played with the hidden trader mechanic in that one? No, God no. Why why would I do that? It's like, well, 
you guys feel like losing a game? Let's play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because most recent cooperative games tend to be rather difficult, at least until you learn the mechanics. And if you add someone who is actively working against you, that's just generally a failure in terms of not winning the game. Yeah, as you may have guessed from our conversations, we tend to not use those unless it's an integral part of the game. But I think one of the first, at least in our books, culprits of this type of added on component is our next game. The severely underrepresented genre in board games. Let's talk about some zombies. Oh, God. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Dead of Winter, a Crossroads game released in 2014, published by Plaid Hat Games, designed by Jonathan Gilmore and Isaac Vega. In Dead of Winter, you're cooperatively a colony of humans trying to survive yet another zombie apocalypse. In each round, you're basically getting an event where something horrible is going to happen. You're sending disposable people out on missions to collect resources like food and weapons and fighting off zombies. Where the hidden traitor mechanic comes into it is that at the beginning of the game, everyone's given a secret goal. Even if the colony survives and all the humans are perfectly happy in their little apocalypse, you lose if you don't accomplish your specific goal. So some of those goals are just random things where you have to go to a place and get something. Some of those goals are you want the zombies to get into the colony and kill everybody. So it goes from a cooperative game to a why are you doing that? Why are you making all this noise? Why are you summoning zombies? Why haven't you cleaned up the colony? Why are you doing that? And then zombie apocalypse. Everyone dies. <laughs> In this game, you die fairly easily. So it can turn a game around very quickly, in my experience anyway. Yeah, like, I think that the individual goals mechanic in Dead of Winter just makes this game worse. Because in theory, what it does is it incentivizes suboptimal play. But what I often find happens in the game is, oh, he's doing that because it's his personal goal. I think the personal goals are fine without having a hidden traitor in it. We're about to win, but I really kind of want to wait until I've collected a little more fuel. Mm -hmm. If you add that in on a hidden traitor, I mean, it makes it easier to disguise who the traitor is because everybody's kind of hoarding their own thing. But also, I think it just tips it over the edge into too difficult. Yeah. At no point in me playing this game have I ever wanted to do the double think of, oh man, is Brian just collecting fuel because that's his personal goal or is he doing it because that's his personal traitor goal? Because mm -hmm. like that seems like an unnecessary level of think. But also, I have yet to figure out how I would go about deducing the difference. Mm -hmm. There's a whole mechanism in the game for, you know, voting someone off the island and kicking them out and then they become sort of a lone wolf that's obviously trying to stop you. I don't think I've ever seen that happen in a game for, I think, exactly the reason you're describing. Mm -hmm. It's not unless the trader screws up in some obvious way or does some big power play that should utterly put a dagger in the heart of the camp and doesn't. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard to figure out who the traitor would be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I've only played this game with the traitor once or twice, and it was interesting because I was the traitor and I was a cult leader. Mm -hmm. So my personal goal was have the most characters, mm -hmm. which anytime anybody asked, I was like, oh, no, that's just my personal goal. And there was no pushback, no arguments. We can't feed any more <laughs> people, Mike. Right. But sure, at yeah. no point did the conversation become, don't do that because you're a traitor. It became, well, if that's your personal goal, we'll do it. But you have to time it right so that we can all not die. Yeah. 
I think Dead of Winter without the Hidden Traitor is a perfectly fine game. Yeah. I don't think the Traitor adds anything and sometimes subtracts. Yeah. The one thing it does add, it does provide a level of paranoia to the game that is very Walking Dead. If that's what you're looking to experience, I think having a Hidden Traitor does crank the paranoia up a couple notches. I don't love the mechanic either personally, but if you're like, man, I really want a game where I'm hyper paranoid all the time, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It doesn't feel sewn into the game, right? Yeah. It, it seems it like there's it a lot of extra steps on. for very little yeah. value. Unlike, you know, another game later on this list that I think nails it. And like you were saying, I think we see something very similar in Upper Deck's Legendary Encounters Alien, where it's like, there is a traitor mechanic, but that game is already so punishing that, like, why would you want to have that on top of everything else that's going on in this game that's already incredibly difficult? Not to mention, in that game, there isn't really a way for any player to really determine that player's traitor. I feel like what it is for some of these games is most co-op games, most modern co-op games start out really punishingly hard and you will either stop playing or you will learn the secrets and the tricks to get there. And for most of these, once you have figured out the system, they become pretty easy. And I think this is just a way for say, okay, if you have beaten the game on its hardest difficulty level and you still want to make it harder, here's a way you can do that. Yeah, here's a way to spice it up. I don't play any cooperative game often enough that that's a problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's also worth noting in the Alien game that there's also a variant where you can play if the first person who gets killed can come back as an alien in the game, which basically is just a way of speeding up the end of that game. <laughs> well, that, that's actually just a mechanic within the game, and I especially love it because it is specifically if you die via facehug, yes. at which point you come back as an alien. That is a, hey, this game is over. Let's just play it out now. <laughs> right. They also, in the expansion, came out with like the Alien Queen, which is a not-hidden traitor. It's just, this is a person DMing the alien. No, this is a one-versus-many game. Right. Yep. And just like with Dead of Winter, I think the saving grace is that these are optional rules that you do not have to play with. Mike, all rules are optional rules. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, yeah. Like if someone tells you the game and doesn't tell you about one of the rules, for instance, that sometimes happens. <laughs> you always learn about the rule at some point during play. Just think of it like a legacy component in a game <laughs> that you were not expecting a legacy component, okay? Ooh, good idea. My favorite is still Viva Java. We played a couple games of that in fairly rapid succession, and each time we kind of realized something we were doing wrong. And then at one point, friend of the show, Sean, was taking a look at the rulebook and we realized that we had been doing like three or four major things completely wrong for every playthrough and just basically reset the entire game. I'm still convinced Joe is just having us playtest his, his <laughs> game idea using the Viva Java Could component. Could be. We're not sure. It's hard to be sure. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit with Fake Artist Goes to New York, but our next game is going to be Spyfall, which came out in 2014, published by Hobby World and designed by Alexander Ushan. This game is conceptually the same as Fake Artist, where every player receives a card from a location deck, and that card is going to tell you A, what the location is, and B, what your role within that location is. One person will receive a card that just says spy. Players need to take turns asking each other questions about the location, such as, what do you see above you? That person then has to provide an answer that will indicate, yes, I know where we are, 
but does not give enough information that the spy can also figure it out. And again, this gives a lot of interesting stories, like what is above you, saying something like the ceiling doesn't work when your location is outer space. Mm -hmm. My favorite outer space one was when someone asked, what do you do to relax around here? And someone says, sometimes I just go for a walk outside. (laughs) That was a short game. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's really just a, how much information can I provide to indicate that I'm in on the joke and not let the person who is not in on the joke figure it out. And it really is just a concise, fun, short little game that you can play easily with up to like 10 people. Yeah. I would say my biggest complaint with this game is when you first open the box, (laughs) now you have to sort out all of those location decks. And I think, Joe, you ended up like individually bagging each of the locations, which I think is a You more or less have to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Did they actually provide them? I don't remember. I believe they came with the bags. Okay. Yeah, and so when you play the game, you just mix up all the bags, you pick a bag, take the cards out, verify the spies on the bottom, because that's all the information you need to know is that, hey, there is a spy here, shuffle yep. it up, deal them out. There's also a Spyfall 2, which functionally lets you handle more players and may add a second spy for big player counts. There's a more DC version, there's yeah. a time travel yeah, version. It's more cards. But honestly, it's just more locations. Yep. It's fun, it's a quick game, which keeps people interacting, good for large groups. It's cheap, it's fun, it's mm-hmm. good. So, I teach, and... One of the group dynamic building, you know, how do we work together activities that I did one year, I made some custom Spyfall cards and we just did some group building Spyfall and it was really good. So you taught them that they should all work together except for the one kid who was inevitably trying to cause them all to fail. It was all about communication. (laughs) The nice thing about this game is there's there's not really any reading that needs to go with it, so you can play it with younger kids. Yeah, as long as it's a location they know and understand. I mean, all of the locations, at least in the base set, were more or less kid-friendly. Sure. I think it concept is a really big thing for them to wrap their brains around. But I think if you've got a family or a large group that does involve kids, this is also a hidden trader game that you can easily involve them in. Mm-hmm. Another one that we wanted to talk about, or mostly that I wanted to talk about, largely because of the name, is Trader Mechanic, the Trader Mechanic game, which was in 2016 by Dice Hate Me Studio from Christopher Bedell and Peter Hayward. This is one of a couple games that these guys have done in which they are basically taking the name of a game mechanic and punning it into a game. So this is a game in which all of the players are working at an auto body shop as mechanics. But one of them is actually working for a rival auto body shop and is thus a traitor mechanic. It's a fairly standard game in that respect. You get a job that you have to do. Everybody can contribute cards face down to the job and somebody may be screwing it up and trying to get the company to spend more money. If you're the boss, you have the option to give someone a day off, which means they don't get to play cards into that job if you think they're the traitor. You know, Brad, I've never heard somebody put such emphasis on give somebody a day off that it sounds as weaponized as (laughs) what you just said. You, take the rest of the day off. (laughs) Whoa. It's a fairly standard game. I just think the name of it is very clever. These are the same guys who did deck building, the deck building game, which is a deck building game in which you are building a deck on the back of someone's house. (laughs) Also, Christopher Bedell is of Sentinels of the Multiverse fame. Yep. One of Mike's favorite game designers. I haven't actually played this one. And like I say, mechanically, it doesn't look like anything super exciting. I just think it's a really clever play on the title. So one game that I think hasn't really gotten enough love at all is New Angeles from 2016 Fantasy Flight Games when they used to make games. 
uh, designed by James Niffen. <laughs> there are little stabbing motions going on. And uh, yeah, Fantasy Flight's dead to me. Except for Arkham Horror LCG, which is amazing and everybody shut up. <laughs> Still dead to me. But New Angeles is weird because it's kind of, while it has a hidden traitor thing, it's actually more like King's Dilemma with a can of Battlestar Galactica going on. And everyone's a super corporation. It's set in the world of Android because that's a thing. And, you know, we have to reuse that art. (laughs) Basically, you have a whole bunch of robots, resources, some workers and everything. And... Every turn you get a major crisis or a list of things that you have to buy. And you have to make sure that the entire New Angeles gets those resources collectively. So there's a hint of co-op going there. But then, of course, you've got things you want for yourself because you want victory points. In particular, the winning conditions are really weird. At the start of the game, you're given one other corporate rival that's another player. Probably another player. In which case, your only goal in the game is to score more points than that player. Hmm. So you have one mortal enemy that you want to screw and just have more points than them. So like multiple people can win as long as they each outscore their rival? Correct. It seems like (laughs) hyper-targeted hidden betrayer. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But there is actually a possibility that it's a case like uh, Shadows of Camelot where multiple cards go in. One of those cards is the actual traitor. And he wants to have at least 25 capital and have threat reach 25. Capital's really your victory points. And threat is what happens when you don't commit enough resources collectively to get past the crisis. So that one person's pushing the crisis button and running that forward and will win over everyone else. I'm not sure it needs to be there, which is a little weird. It helps to keep the threat of threat going on. But even then, your own goals of wanting to just get victory points more than your rival are enough to drive it. There's also the possibility of the game ending because one of the plastic figures makes it into the basically New Angeles Central called Root. Things that are left unchecked will gradually begin to filter and expand their way into Root. If anything breaks in, yeah, you're done for. Hmm. The actual gameplay, though, is very King's Dilemma. Each turn, someone proposes a, oh, we're doing this. And it's a, you know, set of steps that might remove some of the protesters, get rid of the robots, you know, create some resources, and then everyone votes on it. And that's, the game is those kind of things. However, the person who proposes the thing gets a bonus of a one-shot power card, uh, which is known to all players. Mm-hmm. And so you might just, if it's your rival, you might just vote against it. To keep Just so they don't have that. Just so they don't have that card. <laughs> and so it creates a weird dynamic that I'm guessing probably feels like King's Dilemma because there's a couple things going on, two levels of politics. Mm-hmm. And it's all, literally, the entire game's just voting on no. No, that's so not. We can't do that. (laughs) Joe, you would probably love this because it's a win better game with a hidden traitor. I like like it. Everything you want. No, like I can see a game that is the mechanics of King's Dilemma, but with more attached onto it. This one, you have more kinds of things to manipulate. There are resources dealing crisis and threat, as well as all of the various places that are threatened. Mm-hmm. And of course, you have income on those places. If they're threatened by, you know, a robot revolution strike thing, yeah, it's not going to really produce and you're going to need that or else. Yeah, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But that's the cooperative part because everyone's trying to keep that. Yeah, from nobody happening. wants protesters. Yeah. They need one of the roll cards to see it'll be the labor organizer so that if the protesters <laughs> win, you win. And then it's just archipelago with robots. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> well, let's keep this uh, futuristic dystopia train rolling. Let's talk about Nemesis, uh, released in 2018 by Awaken Realms, uh, designed by Adam Kwapinski. In Nemesis, you basically start off as one of a number of different types of characters waking up from a hibernation chamber in a spaceship that's already in flight. Usually, the way the, the base game works out is 
you're given two objective cards at the beginning of the game. One's a personal objective, one is a corporate objective. For the first portion of the game, both of them are equally viable options. You could complete either one of them and win the game. However, after the first alien pops up on the ship, because of course it's infested with aliens, <laughs> you have to pick one of them. I should point out that this is Aliens the board game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the in everything, but yeah, all, exactly. But you could pretty much find the corporation. Uh, <laughs> Similar to, but legally distinct from, the Whale and Yutani Corporation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the aliens themselves, the little miniatures, are similar to, but legally distinct <laughs> from, the Xenomorphs. And the little face huggers are not called <laughs> face huggers. But they but do hug <laughs> your face. face. <laughs> they just want to be close to you. It's fine. They're not face hugging they're just hugging areas that are around <laughs> above the face. neck above the neck <laughs> come on mike the aliens have two tails that's totally different yeah and, and the eggs and the queen are uh, yeah whatever it's, okay <laughs> moving on for the most of the course of the game it's somewhat cooperative you're all trying to accomplish some goals of not getting the ship to blow up so you're trying to make sure the ship is going on course to earth because you have to get to earth you have to make sure the engines are working because if they don't they'll blow up you have to make sure that you get into an, either an escape pod or the hibernation tube before the ship t goes into hyperspace. However, the goals that you're given kind of vary. Sometimes they're just totally neutral. Hey, you need to escape the ship in an escape pod with an alien egg. That doesn't hurt anybody. It's fine. Sometimes it's kill player two. Just kill that player. They need to die. <laughs> kill player two. Which becomes a bit of a challenge because you can't directly attack anybody in this game. So you can do fun things like lock them into a room that's on fire. Or in one of our games, someone tried to space Joe. Or was it Chris? I can't I remember. tried to space Chris. You tried to space Chris. That's right. You know, there was a fire in there. You just wanted to put the fire put out. The fire out. It's fine. <laughs> he happened to be in there at the time. <laughs> and then sometimes you've got the game where it's just like, kill everybody. <laughs> you need to be the only person who survives. How you do that is kind of up to you. Uh -huh. Get a lot of aliens on the ship. Blow the ship up. Escape an escape pod. Get in the room and lock the door and let the aliens do the rest. Yeah, so the entire time, people are running around doing things, and they might be helping you. It's like, oh, I checked our destination. We're totally going to Earth. Meanwhile, they've pointed us at outer space because that's <laughs> what their specific goal is. Joe and I had a really fun uh, game recently where uh, we tried it with the add-on, The Untold Tales, where it takes the base game and overlays a narrative on it that you could discover while you're playing it. I have only ever played this game on competitive mode. And it just rubs me the wrong way in every single possible aspect that it possibly could. My sole experience with this game was I got a objective that was like, get the ship to go to Earth. Mm -hmm. So I start the game by making the long, arduous journey to the back of the ship to turn the engines on. And I'm like, okay, great. Now I'm going to have to go all <laughs> the way across the ship, dodging aliens, dodging other players, to make sure that the destination is set to Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, I get halfway back across the ship to head back to the helm when some other jerk just goes to the engine and just like, off. <laughs> and now I'm just like, well, now I've got to go back to the back of the, like, <laughs> it just did not work for me whatsoever. It does feel a little bit crazy chaotic. I'm, I'm almost getting like a Castle of Magic vibe from it <laughs> in yeah. that it's just like you have these things and you have literally no idea what anybody else is trying to do and you just kind of hope that nobody's actions are too opposed to yours. Well, like, I get conceptually that what it wanted me to do was 
temporarily team up with someone else who also wanted the ship to go. Mm -hmm. So like if Joe's objective was to get the ship to go to Mars, I could be like, oh, hey, Joe, you also want to get the ship to go. Could you go back and turn that engine on for me? I'm going to head up to the helm to totally make it go. But Joe is not at all incentivized to believe anything I say because there's no way for him to know unless he checks my work. At which point he would have to go in the opposite direction of the engines back to the helm to see if I really was telling the truth about the destination I sent the ship. And it's just like you as an individual player cannot be everywhere at once. So you cannot do all the things you need to do. And you cannot reliably team up with anyone else because there is no way that they have the same objective as you. Yeah, but you can team up with multiple players to do parts. In fact, we found that when playing the competitive game, the cooperative game actually works really well. If you, you know, check that engine and make sure someone goes back to check that engine with any two people checking something, discrepancies will probably pop up if there is a discrepancy. At that point, you'll have an idea who you can trust, how screwed you are at that point. So we generally have made a point of, you know, having someone else check that. Sending two people back to deal with the engines, et cetera. Yeah, the competitive version almost strikes me as having kind of a diplomacy vibe. It's like you can't win by yourself. You can't. And you know everybody else is trying to win their own way. But maybe you can get them to help you enough that you can win. But unlike diplomacy, multiple people can easily win. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a dead of wintery. Yeah. In the base cooperative game, I think the likelihood of three or four, like let's say you have a six player table, I think the likelihood of half the table winning is pretty high. Yes. Cooperative or base competitive? competitive. Base Base competitive. competitive. It's very likely that more than half the table wins. I think when we played, we had five people and two people won that game. Because there was one person needed to get off the ship with an egg, and they did, and I needed to fly the ship to Mars, and I did. Jason needed to kill the queen, and he did not. Oh, yeah. No, I got in a fist fight with the queen. It failed miserably. Seems like a bad plan. <laughs> I think, like, out of the five people we had, two people won. I think that's what you're going to see with the competitive game. About half the players will win, right? Yeah. So there are people at the table that you can trust because, ultimately, lots of people don't care about a lot of components, right? Mm-hmm. Honestly, trying to get back to Earth is probably the hardest egg, one. egg, fine, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that was only made harder due to the fact that someone else at the table had a diametrically opposed. Sure. Oh yeah, tell me. Yeah, and that's always going to be mission. a problem. Except it's not because in this specific instance, Joe and I both want the engines to be on. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like Brian might have a thing that's just like make the ship not go anywhere. Make sure which, the ship blows up. Yeah. yeah, it would be Joe and I versus Brian. But then also, once we murder that fool. Now it's Joe and I versus each other. Like, it's a very weird, everybody is betraying everybody. I think it's worth noting, uh, how'd your game end last time, Joe? (laughs) It was actually pretty great. So uh, Chris and I were the last two players. My goal was to kill Chris, and Chris's goal had already been met by killing someone else. Because I couldn't attack Chris directly, I was just running around the escape pod he was in trying to spawn aliens. So I ran into his room, an alien spawned, he used a power to cause it to go away, and then I moved out, moved back in, spawned another alien, the movement card caused it to move away, and then the alien Uh. bit me in half, killed me, and then on the next event, the rest of the ship caught on fire and exploded, (laughs) so no one won. Yay, fun. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was fun. really, the Untold Stories are actually a lot of fun. Yeah, like I thought that was really well I, I done. I thought it was pretty clever the way it worked, kind of not knowing what's about to happen. It does kind of feel to me like 
once you've played each of them once, the novelty mm. is yep. gone, which is mm. fine. But like doing the first one and like opening the comic book to the page where it was like, and it's like a giant screen with a big smiley face emoticon on it. I'm like, oh no, oh no. I really like Nemesis. Where I think this works better than Dead of Winter. When you give out those cards in the competitive game, you pretty much get a ship objective that's generally fairly co-op, fairly benign, yep. will often mesh well with everyone else's. And then you've got the red corporate objective and everyone has both of these. And when you choose, you're choosing between the I'm going to be a heartless bastard. Yeah. yeah, Are you going going PvP or not? (laughs) And also, depending on which group I've played with, you know, some are taking all red and it's a bloodbath. (laughs) Some are actually trying to take the blue and trying to see if we can sew all this together. And you can kind of tell from which players you're playing with. I know Sandy's always going to take the nice objective. (laughs) It's Sandy. If I'm playing in a game, everyone's just going to assume I took the evil. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I often don't. Mm -hmm. Sure, you say that. I think this is why this game really vexes me because, in theory, everything that we have described is right up my alley. I love the description of everything about this game, but sitting down and playing it, just I do not like it. Did you just play it that one time? I have, but he has it, only played it, it a single time and he's refused to play it, it since. Oh, yeah. Really rubbed me the wrong Apparently. way. Apparently, I really want to play. So they have a campaign. Mm-hmm. I yeah. desperately want to get to I the table. I would be in for that because I, totally. I want to try this out. And some of those campaign, I looked briefly at the first one. I'm thinking like the first one's really short. So there's some shorter games. Ooh. And it's like a probably a six-hour campaign. Oh, that's not Damn bad. it. I really do love campaign <laughs> games. <laughs> Same here. And I want to play it. And then one other thing I wanted to mention since, as we said, this is pretty much an alien game. Right around the same time, there was actually a game that came out called Aliens Hadley's Hope which is technically a trader mechanic game because you're all trying to escape a colony ship and one of the people is trying to sabotage the escape. Presumably he's playing the Paul Reiser role. He's Burke. Yeah, exactly. They may have gotten the alien license at the time, which is weird because it's from a group called Crazy Pawn Games, which I don't think they've done much, if anything else. And it's like, how did these guys get the aliens license? Yes. <laughs> Let's move on to the mysterious. Let's talk about Obscurio, which released in 2019 by Ludabel Games and designed by, whoa. Atelier. Atelier? He only has a single name? It's like Cher. <laughs> it's a nom de guerre. Ah. In Obscurio, it is not unlike Mysterium in a lot of ways. Everyone except for one player is a wizard, and you are all trying to escape this wizarding school, in essence. And the single player is the grimoire that is going to help assist you in exiting this school. One of the players will be a hidden traitor. On the Grimoire's turn, he selects a bunch of locations, looks at some of them, and then places them out. Then everyone puts their heads down and makes noise while a hidden traitor (laughs) looks at a book and makes a bunch of decisions. It takes about 10 minutes. It's way too long. (laughs) It's actually a big problem. In my mind, Like my biggest problem with the game might be that specific phase. I feel like we're playing werewolf for 10 minutes for some reason. Mm. It's really strange. The traitor makes a, a handful of decisions, and then what will eventually happen is the grimoire will be laid out and there'll be two pictures inside the grimoire and there will be some butterflies that are pointing to various pieces on these images in the book. And so like the images are very similar to artwork in Mysterium, right? They're very fantastical, they're very evocative, they're very unusual. And I really like the artwork in this game. There will be on the board six or seven different exits from the room that you're in. 
and you have to look at the pictures in the grimoire and the butterflies that have landed on the grimoire and determine from that information which exit is the correct exit. You guys get to have a bunch of arguments as a table about like, hey, is it this exit or is it this exit? You get a specific amount of time, right? There's a sand timer. And everyone takes their chip and then says, hey, I'm going to exit through this door. If at least one person exits through the right door, the table successfully advances. If no one exits through the right door, the table does not successfully advance. For everyone who exits through the wrong door, you spend a, in essence, a life point currency. If you run out of that currency, the game ends. There's a lot of cool mechanics in this game. Depending on how long it takes everyone to decide where you're going, you will draw a certain number of traps in the next room. And the trap might be put a red revealer over the images so you only get like partial color out of it or put these like swirling mists over it so you get partial color out of it. Or maybe there's another exit or maybe the trader gets some additional power this round. The problem is, as the grimoire, you don't have a lot of control over what's about to happen. You're a book, I guess that makes sense, but it's like you draw all the exits together, all the possible exits, and you randomly determine two locations that are the two pages in the grimoire, and you have already determined one of them randomly is the exit. You don't get to even choose among the hand which one is the exit. And now you have to somehow indicate that one over all the other ones. And it is hard. It is extremely difficult. When we first heard about it, like, oh, I wonder if this is going to make some of the problems with Mysterium be less painful. And it feels like it makes it more painful, honestly. I wonder if it would be better if you could choose the exit among the six you had. It if might, that might be enough to it offset might, it. It might be enough to offset it, for sure. The specific time that we played this game, I was the traitor. And I think much like with some of the games that we discussed earlier... There is very little that the non-trader players can do to figure out who the trader is. Ew. And in this specific instance, the players we were playing with all were joking about me being the trader at the beginning of the game. And so no matter what happened in the game, they were going to vote me as the trader, <laughs> which they just happened to be right. But the thing is... It didn't really matter. Nope, didn't change anything. Because it was so easy as the trader to pick things that would very easily misconstrue what the grimoire was trying to tell the other players that I would have had to make an effort to not win. Hmm. Yeah. It did sound like a good concept. It sounds like it doesn't quite work in practice. I think people are still trying to sort of refine the whole Mysterium concept. I think there's some good stuff here, but it sounds like this one doesn't quite land. It has a lot of cool mechanics. I think the traps and stuff are really mm, cool, yeah, and they clever. have a huge effect. Honestly, you're super surprised. The first time we got the Red Revealer one, everyone's like, oh, that'll be fine. Then they put it on like, holy, sh I can't see anything. This is <laughs> That's crazy. That's not fine. <laughs> Why is everything in this card red? <laughs> the mechanics do a cool job. It's just like doesn't quite land. Okay. The last game I wanted to mention, we don't know a lot about because it's not out yet, but I think it has potential. This is The Shining. It's due out in 2020. It's from Prospero Hall, going to be published by Mixlore. And, you know, as the name implies, this is a bunch of people who are going to be trapped in the Overlook Hotel from Stephen King's The Shining, and you're trying to get enough willpower to not be corrupted by the hotel, but somebody at the start of the game has already fallen prey to it and is trying to keep you all here forever. Again, we don't know much about it, so it's hard to say that much about it, but I will say that Prospero Hall has been on a bit of a hot streak mm -hmm. lately. They've got Villainous. The Funkoverse game is pretty good. Horrified. Horrified. Horrified is Horrified quite good. Horrified was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, that. And they've also shown with the choose-your-own-adventure board games hmm. that they can hit the graphic design nostalgia demographic. Just the cover of The of Shining Game beautiful. is really great. 
So I think this is definitely going to be worth keeping an eye on when it comes out. I'm sorry, did you say the Funko Pop board game? The Funkoverse board game, yes. That does not compute. No, no, no. It's, it's a Funkoverse. It's basically the a Skirmish game using Funko Pop. That does not and, compute. And don't, don't, don't worry, Mike. It has the Golden Girls in it. That does not compute. <laughs> it's cheap at Target, I think. They it marked is. it down so, to, yeah. There is a running joke in our, our gaming circle that, like, I as a person <laughs> don't understand why anybody would ever want a Funko Pop figurine. And, like, I say that as a person who owns more than one Funko Pop figurine. <laughs> not of choice. They were given to me as gifts. And, like, I just haven't thrown them away because that feels also like a terrible waste. But also, I don't get it. I don't. In my mind, people are just throwing them at you saying, this is yours now. Ordinarily, I would totally agree with you, but then they released a Funko Pop gelatinous cube and, uh, <laughs> no, sorry, sold. Is there a skeleton in it? Please yes. Someone, yes. yes. <laughs> in the strategy game, there are DC heroes, Harry Potter, Rick and Morty, and Golden Girls are the ones that are initially right out. Because so, <laughs> Golden Girls versus Rick and Morty, I think you almost have to just try that. That's about all we have to talk about this time. There are certainly some more Hidden Trader games out there, so if we've missed your favorite, let us know about it. As usual, we would love to hear your feedback. You can find us on Facebook. We theoretically have a Discord server, which sometimes we go to. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming, and we will talk to you again next month. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Designed by Mark Anticole and Matthew Anticole. Huh. I wonder if they're related. I mean, <laughs> ain't to call? No, 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 no. no. <laughs>